You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Glad to be back. Well, I say back. <laughs> for us, it's just a few minutes. For you, it's been a week. But I'm going to need that time to get everything edited for this episode anyway. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> we Podcasting, are, uh, the art of time travel. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, we're a little bit of behind the scenes stuff, um, which is great because, you know, no one's here for the production value anyway, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, the <laughs> I think we're both exhausted said, and we're just slap happy at this point. I, I that's kind of where I am. This has been kind of a long week. I've put in two 12-hour days in the last 2 days and I've got to go in this afternoon, but um it's all good. It's uh they treat me pretty well. It's just sometimes we get a little extra busy. So, anyhow, that being said, we should talk about that and not my work. <laughs> just talk about the Bible and not my work rather. Yeah, yeah. So, so- when we when we last left, we were about to go into Psalm fifty one eight, right? Yeah, which was actually unintentionally like the perfect point to break, because the first part of the psalm has been all about David just like lamenting his miserable state as a sinful person. He's been horribly and brutally honest about his own condition, and. You know, he's he's just used this this incredibly vivid imagery that has so much punch, especially if you are a Jewish reader from, you know, David's time, or even if you date the psalm to the eighth century, which is much later, the imagery is still there. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes we, you know, we forget that this stuff meant something. These aren't just random words. David didn't pick hyssop because, you know, it's a pretty plant. He picked it because it has significance within the Jewish religion itself. Within the Torah, it has significance. And so um, what happens is at verse verse 8, David flips it, and he takes the focus off of himself, and now he's moving into addressing God and God's character and God's interaction with humanity, but he does it in a way that I would think, well, I don't think, I know is not popular with a lot of Christians today. So we're going to read the verse and we're going to talk about uh, some of the implications. So verse eight says, "Let um, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Now, this is I mean, on on face value, I mean, broken bones rejoicing, I and mean, this is just just nuts. But the the thing is, we have to keep in mind David's perspective, and it only makes sense, and you can only understand it if you understand what David understood, what what Solomon understands, and Solomon records his perspective in Proverbs three eleven through twelve, where he writes, "My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof." For, the, for he reproves him he loves, and as the father, the son in whom he delights. And this is uh, repeated in Hebrews 12, 6. David sees God's discipline as proof and evidence of love. Now, this is not 
battered wife syndrome. This is not somebody who um, is loving their abuser. This is somebody who recognizes that discipline is necessary. It's the pop on the seat of the pants for a kid who wants to run out in traffic. It's a little pain to stop a lot of damage. And there is a huge difference between pain and damage. And unfortunately, we tend to conflate the two within our culture. If I don't like it, if it hurts me, or even if it makes me uncomfortable, it can't be good, is how we as human beings tend to look at things. But we know this isn't true. And um, I was thinking of examples of this. And of course, I think we've all heard the dentist uh, example in sermons at some point or another, uh, or a personal example. Uh, I had MRSA. Uh, I was in the hospital when dad was sick and, uh, you know, that lives in the hospital. And I, I caught it. And the treatment for that was incredibly painful. It hurt like very few things have ever hurt me in my life. And it was not just a one-time event. It was, uh, they had to go in, they had to lance it, they had to debris it, they had to do all this horrible stuff, and then they had to pack it with sterile gauze, and then they had to take that out the next day and repack it. And this went on for two weeks. And you know, the idea that they weren't causing me pain to cause me pain, they were causing me pain to prevent damage. Because it could have turned into a life-threatening situation very easily. And I mean, that was something dangerous that had to be addressed. Well, sin's the same way. Sin is something that has to be uprooted from our lives if, we're, if it's not going to cause damage. And so David is saying that he can hope for joy and gladness because he knows this is productive discipline. This pain is to stop damage. And David has recognized that he's transgressed a boundary with God. And we even recognize in our own human relationships when you cross boundaries with the person you're in a relationship with, you're causing damage. Um, you're becoming an enabler if you allow someone to cross those boundaries. And if God had failed to maintain this boundary with David, then essentially David is the one who's in power. David's the one who has the authority. He's the one who's now sovereign and not God. And so David is now recognizing, no, God's the one in control. And this is the message that, J that David needed to receive because he had gotten it so out of whack. Remember back with Mephibosheth, where he's using God's language to communicate to Mephibosheth. Do not fear. I'm going to give you land and prosperity. David is, has taken on that role that all the kings in that culture would have taken on. And go ahead. And also, uh, th this, is, this is not... Um... This is not saying that, uh, th th this is not, uh, um, oh, what am I trying to say? This is not endorsing that really bad illustration that somebody invented that, you know, the shepherd would go out and break the sheep's leg and carry it around yeah. because that doesn't actually happen. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, one interesting thing about, uh, sheeps and goats is because they are prey animals, oftentimes if they break a leg, um, the level of, pain and and i don't know exactly what it is but if they break a leg a lot of times they will literally just give up and die oh really wow the, it, their bodies are are wired that way i did not uh, realize they, that they, they, mm -hmm. yeah uh there's actually i was listening to an interview with uh with a goat herder <laughs> and she said it was it yeah i know at the things i listened to um but i was listening to this this interview with this uh lady who she, she was a goat herder and she said that 
it is very difficult if you have if you find a goat with a broken leg out in the field because oftentimes by the time you can even get it back to um your barn for treatment they'll just die because they're 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 wired up that way where, where if they're they're experiencing that much pain their body thinks i'm about to be eaten and it just shuts down oh wow Wow. That, I mean, that, that puts a whole new spin on it because. So that sermon illustration <laughs> of the shepherd breaking the sheep's leg, that's not what this verse is about because it's bubkis is probably the <laughs> kindest word I can say about that illustration. Well, I mean, uh, but it, it is, it illustrates the, the fact too, that there is that difference between pain and damage. Uh, and mm-hmm. so sometimes pain, I mean, uh, as much as I hate to quote Augustine, uh, but uh, you know he says all education begins in pain. Uh, there, there's something to that. Uh, that's where I've learned the most, honestly. But you know what? What I find to be very interesting is people who object to God honoring David for you know even after what he did with Bathsheba and and uh, Uriah are also often the ones who object to the idea of God disciplining and. Mm-hmm. You know, they create this no-win situation for God where, you know, God's wrong for honoring David and forgiving him, but he's also wrong for disciplining David. And, and the thing is, I think you can only really pick one. I, I don't think you can have both. <laughs> well, and that, that really is a problem, I mean, with, with the worldview that makes everything legalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you have, if you have a worldview where Christ isn't the center, and God's goodness and His graciousness and His character isn't the center. Center, I should make sure I clarify that is not the center of everything. Then you create a world where there is only justice, only vengeance. There is no compassion, and there's no room for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. There's no room for repentance, and then we have to understand that that's core to our faith, and mm-hmm. it always has been. Mm-hmm. Well, and on the flip side, if all you have is grace, love, and mercy, and compassion, and there's no justice, and there's no discipline, then we can do whatever we want. And then God's somehow obligated to forgive everything and to act like everything's okay. And, and that's not the truth. And you know, I think part of the problem comes into— Well, and it, it's, it's— Go ahead. I was say, it's, it's, the, it's, the, 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 it's the double-edged sword of the self-acceptance movement. If I am in a position and, uh, I, you know, a good illustration for pain for improvement is exercise. Mm-hmm. I know you use the E word, um, <laughs> you know, uh, working out your, your muscles get sore, but they get sore temporarily and then they get better and then they get stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not trying to shame anyone here, <laughs> but there, but we do have times and things that people talk about in their lives that this gets filed under the self-acceptance of, oh, this is just the way I am. This is just my personality. The flip side of that is if somebody does anything that you deem as sinful, that's just the way they are. That's just their personality Mm -hmm. and they can't change. Right. Um, So um, I was listening and I was listening to um, Julie Royce the other day um, and she said something that was very interesting. Um, She's like, we believe God can we believe Jesus can raise from the dead. We believe God will be able to resurrect us in the future, but we don't believe he can change us. That's just absurd. <laughs> wow. And like, like, yeah, that, that's pretty spot on. Yeah, that, that's really, anyway, no, that's really good because, I, well, 
and I think part of the reason why we have a problem with biblical discipline is is it opens up the door for God to discipline us today and for God to correct us today. And so we don't want that. I mean, we want a God who, who's close enough to answer our prayers when we want something, but not so intimately involved in our lives that he might actually care about what we do. Um, and, and then the other problem with celebrating God's forgiveness is to say that the only reason why God might not forgive everyone rests on the fact that not everyone asks, not everyone seeks it. And right. so there's this, this idea that God can be relational. And really, whenever we, we fall into universalism, whenever we talk about uh, theism or theistic kind of God where he just, you know, or de- sorry, deist, deism, deism, um, you know, we, we depersonalize God, where when you have a God who, who responds in a very relational manner, that includes forgiveness, that includes discipline, and, and these are parts of having a functional relationship. And when I say discipline, I mean, we can, we can soften that language back to choices and consequences. Uh, you know, I, I have a spouse who sleeps through his alarm clock. I, I love this man. I, I, have been a few days we'll have married 11 years and he's still around and so you know he sleeps through his alarm clock a consequence is sometimes i might throw ice cubes in the bed uh it's not it's not about um just being mean for for mean sake is because he has something to do there's a purpose for moving him out of that spot and so he made a choice to to not pay attention to his alarm clock we can we can talk about all these examples because we know all these examples. They fit within our our paradigms and the matrix of how a relationship functions. And so when we talk about discipline and forgiveness, we're talking about a God who is relational. Uh, and that's the point. And we can't remove those two elements without removing God from that intimate experience within a relationship. And so... Um, Anyway, I, I'm, I, I will get off that little soapbox because it, it's, it's so important to me that people realize that God does care about your day-to-day stuff. And David recognizes this. So he, he turns to God in verse 9 and he says, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities. Now, this is really interesting. I, this, this verse, I, I kind of sat and just thought about it for a while because only a God who is close can have a human being sin before his eyes. A God who's distant it doesn't have the sin before his eyes. And David is making this distinction between his sin, what he's done, and who he is. If God was going to hide his face from David, then he would be acting in judgment, in condemnation of David. Uh, we see this in Deuteronomy 31, uh, verse 17 through 18. Let me turn over there because it's been just long enough. I don't remember why I picked those verses. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and so I'm just going to hope I've got the right right verses. So uh, 31, 17, and 18. And what book was that? Deuteronomy. Again? Deuteronomy, okay. Then my anger will be kindled against them that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, that they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come on them, so they will say, Have not these evils come upon us, because the Lord is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil they have done, because they have turned to other gods. And so then I've also got 3220. 
And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. So the idea that hiding God hiding his face from his people is judgment. It's not, um, this is not grace. This is not mercy to have God hide his face from you. And so when David is praying this, He's praying that God does this to his sin. You know, blot out my sin means to it's abolished, that it's exterminated. It's the same word that God uses in Genesis 6-7 whenever he sends the flood. He's going to blot out humanity with the flood. Uh, it's also what he says he's going to do with the memory of Amalek. He's going to blot out their memory uh, from the earth. This is uh, the punishment. And... These are harsh terms to hide the face, to blot out. These are harsh terms reserved for the greatest offenders. And David is basically saying, my sin is so terrible that it needs to be exterminated. It needs to be totally decimated, to be taken away from the world, to be forgotten. He's accepted his responsibility for it. He's not in denial. That's important. The first part of the psalm, he's not in denial of what he's done, which a lot of times whenever we've sinned, I know I've had the tendency to go, oh, well, I'm just going to pretend like that didn't happen. David doesn't skip that step. He he embraces this fact. But then he says, I want it removed from me. And I want you to pour out your judgment and your wrath on my sin, because that's what it deserves. And he's not allowing the sin to con- uh, to be confused with him, with his true identity. And I think that's one of the big mistakes we make a lot of times. Our sin becomes our identity. And, you know, we, we talk about, well, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, I'm, uh, you can put any number of, of sins in there. I'm a thief, I'm a murderer. You can, you can use these terms and to describe yourself, and that's accepted vernacular in our day and age, and it has been pretty much through all of history. Uh, And the problem is, once something becomes part of your, uh, your identity, now if someone says that's wrong, they aren't just saying that something you did or something you experienced was wrong. They're saying you are wrong. And so your first reaction is to jump up and defend it and say, this is who I am. How dare you attack me? How dare you act offended by how I was created? And David doesn't make that mistake. He separates his sin from his identity because the sin does deserve wrath. The sin deserves judgment. Him as a person, as someone created in the image of God, and someone who's been adopted into God's family, now he stands in a position to receive grace and mercy, not because of who he is, but because of who God said he wants David to be and who he created David to be. And the the thing is, when he does this, David is acknowledging that this judgment doesn't end his life it actually connects him back to the source of life he he's recognized that sin has separated him from the god who gives life which i believe this is part of why we also have this this refrain of of birth and and um conception and and you know these kind this kind of language in the first part of the psalm 
And I have to wonder too, how many of us would be brave enough to ask God, excuse me, to to actually call down judgment on our sins? I mean, I have had never. <clears throat> sorry, I had never. It's, it's kind of a scary. It's kind of a scary thing to think about. It really I mean, is. If you really, if you really get into it, you're like, you know, there's, there's, we, everyone kind of has this intrinsic cry for justice, but whenever we really think about it, how much do we really want that? I, this is boldness. I, I, I was just blown away because we think about this psalm. I mean, it starts out. I, we, we heard it translated. Have mercy on me, on God, oh God. So we, we think about it as a cry for mercy. And then when David flips it and says, no, I want you to judge this. I, I, my mind was blown because, you know, David could have wallowed in this. He could have said, you know, hey, I'm a rapist. I'm a murderer. I'm not good enough to receive God's mercy. I've known people like that in my life. People who, whose shame over their sin is so deep that they can't even accept the fact that God might have compassion on them. They can't accept the fact that there might be forgiveness. And so David, he, he doesn't do this because he recognizes that when God says he loves someone, when God says he cares for someone, now it's God's obligation to fulfill that, not David's obligation to earn it. David could have claimed it was his right as king. That's another option. He could have said, hey, this is what kings do. This is how we operate. Everybody does it. All the other kings do it. I mean, this is what Saul was guilty of. This is why he had to be removed. I mean, not this particular sin, but acting like all the other kings. Mm -hmm. David doesn't do that. He could have even claimed that God approved of his actions because, hey, God made me king. What else did he expect me to do? This is necessary as a king. This is what kings do. So therefore, it's okay. God must be all right with it. I've known people who have thought of their sins in that way. Um, mm hmm and even pastors who have thought of their sins in that way. I mean, and I don't want to go too far <laughs> down that path because that's a whole, that's going to open up a whole nother conversation that I'm not, I don't have the notes. <laughs> well, I, it, it's, it really is when we recognize that even God's most favored person in the Old Testament, if you will, is not exempt from accepting that sin is sin. Th this should teach us something. And it's not because David's sins were so great that he had to accept it. It's because it's a sin, period. I mean, mm -hmm. e even if it had you know, just been cheating on his taxes, I don't know if a king can cheat on their taxes, but that's a whole other story. Um, but, you know, the, that still would have been a sin. And so one of the things that I actually read it on, on uh, Facebook this morning. Uh, somebody had made the statement that when they heard the phrase, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, that they would respond with um, hate the belief, love the believer. And to kind of show how horrible that that idea is that you can hate the sin and love the love the sinner. Now, I will grant you that terminology in that phrase has been abused in so many ways and used to hurt people. I'm, I'm not negating that. Um, but there, I do believe there is a certain truth in it that we can love a person 
and recognize that they may have done something wrong and still hate what they did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't think you can be in very many relationships, whether we're talking a marriage, we're talking parent-child, uh, you know, friends, whatever, and not have a moment that you really hate what somebody else has done. And that you really think that what they've done is egregious and wrong, and maybe not even wrong against you, that you just don't agree with it, that you think that it violates some part of your covenant and whatever your relationship looks like. And so to me, you know, maybe it's because I grew up in church and I did hear that phrase a lot. It, It doesn't hold a lot of sting. Now, I do think there is a false dichotomy there because there is a a believer becomes who they are, that our beliefs do form the foundation of our identity and what you believe about yourself will become true and it will become manifest in this world. I, I think that's just an inescapable fact, but um, you know, David is recognized you can have judgment for the sin and mercy for the sinner. So first, um, I didn't write the uh, name down. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Uh, create here, this is bara. This is the same word that we find in Genesis 1.1. Bereshit bara elohim. It's reserved for divine activity. Only God can clean the heart. So this is David recognizing he can't do it on his own. Nothing and no one else can release David from the sin. Now, for the rabbis, this creates a huge theological problem because um, nothing is created after day six in their viewpoint. So once you get to day six in Genesis, done. You know, you can't have anything new now. <laughs> I, and to me, I'm going. Are you kidding me? There's, there's verses about God knitting us together. There's, you know, how can you say God can't create something that way? But well, and I, I don't. I mean, is he power? Is he omnipotent? Is he powerful enough to do what he wants? I, I don't. Yeah, so I don't follow. But go ahead. <laughs> well, no, I, and I'm with you on that because I'm thinking like if God really is in, infinite and, and He's eternal, and you know, infinite isn't just linear. I think sometimes we do we think of it as those you know the space between two points, ever expanding points, instead of realizing that it's actually all points expanding all directions at all times, and you know, up, down, across the plane, whatever. Um, you know, we aren't enough. Humanity on this earth is not enough to keep the the infinite and eternal uh, amused or occupied or you know whatever. I, I, he's he's got to be doing other things too. I I just believe that. Um, but so but the way the rabbis got around this is they believe that on the sixth day uh, the principle of repentance was created because God knew that humanity would need it. So. Um, I, I think I'm seeing a little Greek philosophy influence in there that you would create a principle. Um, I, Greek philosophy is not my thing, but uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, but I thought that was really uh, an interesting idea that God would have to create the principle uh, in order to have the action. So now pure we want to create a pure heart uh this is the same word that we find used of the gold and the silver that's used in the creation of the ark and the tabernacle the ark of the covenant that is not noah's ark two different arcs um 
It's also the same word that we find used for animals uh, being offered in sacrifice, that they would be pure without blemish. Uh, renew. Uh, this, this word is actually closely tied to the idea of lunar cycles. So, you know, you've got the moon waxing and waning and the, the moon would be renewed. And so what David is asking is that God would give him the strength to, to move away from his sin and, and create with him the willingness and the desire to, to become uh, more in line with what God ha has wanted from David. So verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, Alter translates this as do not fling me from your presence. Uh, he claims that cast is a little bit too tame. Uh, you know, if you're a fisher person, uh, which you, know, you cast, I mean, it, it's, it's not a violent act. It's all about the grace. It's all about the smoothness and the ease to get that, that right. Um, right spin on things but this altar wants us to, to see it as more of a violent act that is going to be more about flinging that just 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 throwing david away uh, and just you, this kind of repulsion that comes with it and we need to remember in ancient israel death is not the ultimate punishment death is part of life it, it's just something that exists the ultimate punishment is exile. It's being removed from the place where God's presence is. It's being removed from the covenantal community. And the idea that you want to be connected with God, and the way you're connected with God is to be in Israel, to be where the ark is, to be where God's people reside, where they worship him. And so you, you want to stay in that relationship and that you would grieve if that relationship gets broken. And David's already experienced this. If David is writing the psalm, we need to remember that when he ran from Saul, remember he, he had that, that, that time where he cried out that he was going to be forced to be in a land where there's other gods being worshipped, that he might even be forced to worship other gods because he'd been removed from Israel. And so David, he, he understands what exile means. He understands what it means to be removed from the presence of God. And his whole life has been defined by divine activity. It's been defined by the, these divine inter, um, interventions. You know, we, we start with the beginning where he's anointed with king, the, the victory over Goliath that could only happen with divine help. All those years of warfare where he fought these, uh, these battles were basically supernatural and God would fight before the armies that he led and actually wipe out the enemy before David got there. And even, you know, going back to 2 Samuel 7, where he's sitting in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and he's having this conversation with God, whether he's having it directly or he's having it through Nathan, either way, God's words are being spoken to him in a responsive manner. So David knows what it's like to have God interact on these very personal, very real levels of his existence. And so he's saying, I can't take that. I, I don't want that to happen to me. And only a person who's had these kind of experiences with God understands how painful it is to, to experience this breaking relationship. And it says, 
the next line says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, whether or not your Bible has Holy Spirit capitalized is going to kind of depend on the theology of the translator. Right. Uh, so, um, first of all, the Hebrew does not have upper and lowercase. It's just all square. So you, you, you don't have that in the ancient Hebrew. The oldest copies of the Septuagint, they're written in uh, unseals, um, which is all uppercase. So we, again, don't have that, you know, upper or lowercase. But one of the things we need to recognize as Christians is the Holy Spirit is not strictly a Christian concept, okay? Right. Um, <laughs> the... Um, most Jewish um, commentators agree that that the Bible, the the Hebrew Scriptures, never fully explicate who the whole who or what the Holy Spirit is. Uh, they agree that the Holy Spirit's been in operation since the beginning of creation. I mean, and, and that's easy to see. Genesis one two, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Uh, some. Jewish commentators claim that the Holy Spirit is a created being. It's a separate divine entity, uh, something a little higher than the angels, a little lower than God himself. Not necessarily one, but pretty high up in the ranks. Others see this as a manifestation of God, that this is the means through which God interacts with the created world. And that we're, we get this idea that God is spirit and without form. Uh, some equate the Holy Spirit with the Shekinah glory that was over the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, or in the tabernacle and temple, uh, that led them through the desert. Uh, there, there's a lot of debate that nobody has a really good, firm, this is the Jewish definition for what the Holy Spirit is. Uh, so, we we do know, however, it is active, it is present, it's seen as part of the Old Testament theology. And it is agreed upon by all that it's through the Holy Spirit that the words of prophecy are spoken. Um, anytime there's a work of extraordinary righteousness or bravery where um, God needs to empower, empower or inspire humanity to act above and beyond what we would typically expect of a human being, uh, the Holy Spirit would, would be present. Um, Moses, Tamar, Jacob, the, these are members of the Old Testament uh, that were said to glimmer with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, the imagery for the Holy Spirit, we're, we're familiar with that. You know, the Shekinah glory kind of helps with that, with the light and the fire. And then, of course, we also have the dove. And so we shouldn't be surprised that these images are part of the Old Testament. and or we shouldn't be surprised that they're picked up by New Testament writers. I mean, obviously, at Jesus' baptism, uh, when God's Spirit descends like a dove, uh, this would have been, you know, unmistakable for a Jewish audience. Acts 2, sure. when when the, the, the flames appear over the heads, again, they would have taken that imagery right back to Moses coming down off of Sinai and also... Uh, with a Shekinah glory um, being manifest in the desert and in the in the temple. Now, the Holy Spirit's seen as residing within individuals for the purpose of accomplishing specific events. We also see that with Bezalel. Um, God says, I have filled him with my spirit. 
mm-hmm. but it's just these moments that that are empowered and inspired through the Holy Spirit is how it's typically read. That is kind of consistent throughout most of the Jewish co- commentary. So rather than the Holy Spirit residing within all believers at all times, it's more of an as-needed kind of thing that God provides in a moment. So what is really interesting about David here is, and what makes it so extraordinary, is he's seeming to imply that the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go in specific moments. He, he's mm-hmm. seeming to, to say that the Holy Spirit is with him at all times, and the aberration, the, the abnormality, would be if the Holy Spirit is removed. And so this totally flies in the face of everything that we've been taught about the Holy Spirit, um, it, traditionally, either through Jewish sources or even a lot of Christian sources, because I know even when I was in seminary, the professors were arguing what the whole about what the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Testament, <laughs> and so um, when when David says this and he makes this statement, and I, I'm was so shocked that nobody else is picking up on it. That oh my goodness, I'm so used to God's presence, God's Holy Spirit residing with me and being with me in every step of my journey. The idea of it being gone is is horrifying. That's pretty much what he's saying here. And so this kind of turns a lot of things on its head because we're just, it's so automatic to almost presume that the Holy Spirit almost doesn't exist until the New Testament. And I, I, that got me excited because anything that shows me continuity through the, from the old Testament through to the new Mm -hmm. makes me happy. (laughs) And so I I get it. (laughs) Well, it's become so popular. I, I read a comment. I I know I'm talking about Facebook, but I spent a lot of time, you know, um, talking with friends and stuff, especially since COVID uh, about different things in the Bible. And one of the comments I read on Facebook was somebody said, if I never read the old Testament again, I would be fine with that. And this is somebody in leadership and church leadership. And I am just appalled because the New Testament, the, the beauty and the glory and the, the just amazing aspects of it are lost if you don't have the Old Testament to, to root it in. So, um, you know, we need the Old Testament. It, yes, it's disturbing. It's horrifying. I am so thrilled that we're doing Psalms 51 between the David and Bathsheba story and the Tamar and Amnon story, I needed that mm. break from all of the violence. So, um, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Um, Rashi reads this verse. Before, okay. we, before we get okay. into those, I want to point out something that I think is interesting. I want to see if you have anything on this. Okay. Uh, in, <laughs> in the ESV. Mm-hmm. Restore unto me the joy of, of your salvation, and uphold, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Okay? Okay. There's, there's the ESV. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard other translations where it's uh, renew a right spirit within mm-hmm. me. Um, I think I've seen that elsewhere. And then, and then they do a stanza break right after that phrase. Right. JPS, 
Not only do we have a little different wording, we also have a difference in the stanza break. Ah. So uh, this says, let me again rejoice with your help. Let a vigorous, let a vigorous spirit sustain me. I will, teach your tran- I will teach transgressors your way that sinners may return to you. That's the next verse, but mm-hmm. it's grouped with that stanza in the ESV. It's grouped with the next stanza, and it starts with the word then. <laughs> Going for resources there. Huh? <laughs> yeah. And, and then, it, then, it, then, it, then, it, then the next verse says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Yeah. Um. And so... I like. I mean, generally, I like the JPS wording of a lot of the stuff better. Um, <laughs> right, because it's, it's more vibrant, more lifelike, it's grittier. But I think it's well. I know. I think it's interesting here because what we have here is David basically saying, "I'm going to share my testimony. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to tell people how I screwed up and how God brought me back. I mean, that's that's pretty cool." Um, but it's I just I I don't know exactly what to make of that of that stanza break there or the change in the wording, um, but I do know that it's especially you know twenty first century uh, is far removed. But when we say restore unto me the joy of your salvation, one it sounds very formal, mm-hmm. um, especially if you grew up hearing it a lot in church. But also when you when there are um, Books like uh, John Piper's, uh, what was his big one? Uh, Desiring God. Desiring God. I was thinking Experiencing God, but that's a different guy. (laughs) But when you have works like that around that are very popular, where basically, and and people are probably not going to like the way I say this, I tried to read through through it, and I think I made it through at least once. (laughs) But it was basically... It was just repetition of a bunch of Christianese phrases. There was never exposition about what he was actually saying. It just it was repeated. Oh, you just have to learn to delight in the Lord. Learn to delight in the Lord. Okay. Well, there's not much about that. But this is this is with your help. Uh, what was it? Uh, let me find out. Uh, let me rejoice again in your help. You know, mm-hmm. let a vigorous spirit sustain me. You know, it's. Let me rejoice in the ways that I see you disciplining me. Let me, it, it doesn't, you know, when you talk about all the things that have come before, mm-hmm. that verse makes sense with that phrasing. Whereas we have this idea of the joy of, uh, uh, the joy of our salvation. You know, we have the, you know, the idea of this peace that passes understanding, this idea that a lot of teachers want to bring that into this unexplicable joy, inexplicable joy. And it's like, we've, we've got to stop making things so inaccessible. Right. Um, so anyway, that's just my observation on those. I didn't know if you were going to get into any of that. We're, but, um, yeah, we're going to talk I about... I to, to throw that out there. <laughs> well, now you had me, like, I went to, uh, I grabbed the Robert Alter translation. Um, he, he rephrases it, give me back the gladness of your rescue. And with a noble spirit, sustain me. Let me teach transgressors your ways and offenders will come back to you. So, I mean... I, I like Alter because his is just like, I mean, it, it's there. I mean, <laughs> there's no highfalutin, but the, yeah. And, okay, so a little bit of a rabbit trail because you're at the stanza break. ESV, you've got to watch 
and I'm probably going to get letters on this. ESV is horrible about their stanza and chapter breaks because they that is one of the primary ways to manipulate the scripture to to support their views and translation of the scripture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, whether we're talking about uh, Calvinism, because this is definitely a stated position of the translators. This is not anyone reading into it. Uh, very complementarian. There's been huge debates about how they have uh, translated um, verses with women. It, it's not just me. Um, probably the, the most notable um, example of this was Ephesians 5, verse 21 and verse 22. Uh, verse 22 and, and 21 are, are separated by section heading in the ESV. And mm -hmm. uh, what they've done is verse 22 is a dependent clause. There's no verbs in it. And so they right. borrow the, the verb from verse 21 so that verse 22 reads like a complete sentence. It doesn't in right. the Greek. And so mm -hmm. uh, I think that verse 21, I'm going to butcher it, but it's talking about mutual submission there. And then, then verse 22 clarifies that women submit to their own husbands, their own husbands, not to just any man. And so, right. um, but it's, it's a principle within this overarching principle. It's a sub-principle within the overarching uh, principle of mutual submission. And, and that, that break there, not just with the, with the verses, but with the section break, which gives you that visual cue, we're moving on to something new. This is completely different. It, it, it distorts what, what's actually there. So, you know, it's really good to read your Bible as if it doesn't have those section breaks, as if it doesn't have verse and chapter breaks, and so to actually read the full thing in context, because you've got to remember those, those chapter breaks, those verse breaks, and even section breaks are not inspired, okay? They are not holy. Right. They're not sacred. They, they have no ancient roots. Um, I mean, except in the King James, because that's the Bible that's in heaven, right? Don't get me started on that one. <laughs> you want to talk about letters. King James, you know, I, I love the poetry of King James. I still remember most of my memory verses in the King James. There's a rhythm and yeah. flow that other translations just don't have. Um, but, you know, if you're going to study, then you need to look at some of the newer sources. And you need well, and you need to look at multiple translations in the English if you're not a Hebrew speaker. Yeah, even if you are a Hebrew speaker, it's good to look at other people's translations and try to figure out how they got there. Yeah, and I still, I mean, I I say that as I say that as someone who doesn't speak Hebrew, <laughs> but this is what I've heard from other people who read and speak Hebrew. So, yeah. Oh yeah, well, and if I I see there's a problematic verse, my my own practice is to look at least four to five different English translations and also to look at, you know, the, the Brown Driver Briggs and see what they come up with, which side note here, do not rely on Strong's for a definition for Greek or Hebrew. Okay. Just don't do it. If you need a good definition for the Greek and Hebrew, you need to find better sources. Uh, Brown Driver Briggs for, for Hebrew at the very least. Um, I'm trying to think Suddenly, the Greek went out of my head because I haven't touched it in so long. Uh, well, it, well, <laughs> it, and and doing a word study with Strong's basically what you're going to get with Strong's is a list of synonyms mm -hmm. with with no context or any idea of how to apply them in a full sentence. Right. Um. So basically, it's like if I were to take a letter from somebody and go through a thesaurus and just pick my favorite word that 
sounds like that one, I would I could have a completely different sentence by the time, or a completely different letter by the time I was done. And that's basically kind of how it is doing it with only a strong concordance. Okay, so thinking back to the early 90 days, there there's this episode of Friends. Don't hate me because I'm referencing Friends. But um, I don't even remember why I remembered this. Why would anyone start with that? <laughs> um, anyway, listen to this. This is awesome. <laughs> Sorry. So uh, two of the people, uh, Monica and whoever she winds up with, is tr- they're trying to adopt a child and they want a recommendation letter and they get Joey to write the recommendation letter, but he wants to sound smart. And so he uses the thesaurus option on the computer and comes up with this completely ridiculous recommendation letter, which actually helps them out because the social worker thinks that a child wrote the letter. And that's kind of what you wind up with with the straws. <laughs> and, and that's hilarious. So I need to find that clip because it, it was because they read it out loud. But, you know, and I'm not the, the strongs is a tool, you know, definitely. Yeah, you can use it to help find different things, but um, don't rely on it. If you're really going to study the Bible, that we we have so many tools available to us today, so many better tools, and so um, you know, find people who love to study and and let us talk about what we like to use. But okay, so so back to to um, this passage, which I can't. Okay, verse twelve is where we are. Um, we're going to talk about how it fits in with what you were saying. So Rashi, we're going to begin with my notes, so I don't get lost. Again, um, Rashi reads this verse here as actually a reference back to the Holy Spirit. Um, he says that, you know, uh, the, the Holy Spirit saves with joy. And so there is joy in salvation that, that you are actually experiencing, even through the process of being saved, even though it requires repentance and it requir- requires grief, there's joy. Um, but you, you, when you look at salvation within the context of Scripture, one of the places we find it mentioned is like with the Red Sea, where the people are saved through the Red Sea and the Holy Spirit rests on them to give them the courage to cross over. And even in the midst of their fear and trembling, they, they find the strength to do it. And then on the other side, there's joy. There, there's that, that celebration that follows. Uh, he sees mm-hmm. the willing spirit that um, this is what allows us to obey God, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Again, uh, Ibn Ezra, Ezra says that salvation um, is necessary now to David, that David is now looking and understanding what the joy of salvation means, because this is the first time he sinned, that before this he mm-hmm. was sinless. So, uh, you know, you don't understand the, the joy of salvation until you have a need to be saved. Now, I mean, of course, we all know that it's ridiculous, the idea that, that David would be sinless. Everybody has some sort of sin. And, but I think that the Ibn Ezra statement here actually demonstrates the purpose of the story of David and Bathsheba, which is David's holy human. David is just as much in need of salvation as anybody else, because the only hero in the Hebrew Bible is God himself. There, there is no other hero. Uh, we've got some people who occasionally get things right, but more often than not, we're shown how they fail. And so uh, I know we harp on that a lot here, but I mean, it's not only does the world looking into Christianity see this wrong, a lot of us Christians looking out see this wrong. And so we need to realign our vision sometimes. Um, 
But the word here for uh, for salvation, uh, as you say, uh, and it's it's deliverance, rescue, salvation. It has to do with safety and welfare, and it it most frequently refers to a physical rescue from God by God, and through a victory over an enemy that leads to blessing. So. When God leads his armies out, when God leads the armies of Israel out, and he wins against foreign nations and foreign kings, foreign gods, then this is where God's salvation comes in. And so there's some some military implications with this, that salvation is an actual um, conquest for humanity and for our soul, our very existence. And it's not just, oh, <laughs> I see, look, sorry, I live in the country, there's flies. Uh, one of them landed on my mic. Fly buzzing by your microphone. <laughs> it landed on there, yes. <laughs> and so, um, but the, the idea of salvation is so prevalent within, um, within the Hebrew Bible that we actually have six different words that are translated, six different Hebrew words are translated into the English salvation. Now, in the oldest forms, when we talk about salvation, the word is to means to make wide, to to make it spacious. And the opposite of the word for salvation is actually to be in it's a narrowing, is to be in straits. We still use this phrase, you know, dire straits. We need to be saved from our dire straits. Hmm. Um and we see this in Psalms 118.5. It says, from the straits I called Yah, this is the altar translation, Yah answered me in the wide open spaces. Uh, Psalms 118.5 in the ESV says, out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. So you see how you lose the imagery in the ESV where altar retain, retains it. But the, okay, I am getting back to your point. It's just taking me a second to get there. No, no worries. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm okay, here. so the joy uh, shown is exaltation but it's exaltation over the defeat of an enemy um, and so this word is the word that's used to describe the joy of the jews after haman in the book of esther is defeated when his plot is thwarted um in psalms 45 uh, we're presented with the image of a sword wielding warrior who experiences the joy of the lord after victory uh, Psalms 105:43 describes this joy as being felt after the deliverance from Egypt, as we've already mentioned. But the specific reason for this joy is because now they've been freed to serve God. Um, Isaiah 35:10, and this verse is repeated in 51:11, and it says, "And the ransomed, which is the saved, the idea of salvation is also in the ransomed idea." The ransomed of the Lord shall return to Zion, singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and um, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So there's several more times we find the same language throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah, but it's always connected to this idea of God bringing people through this process where they're restored to freedom in order to be able to, to serve. It's being brought back from exile which is why it fits with this idea. Don't fling me away from your present. Cast me not from your, your presence. It, it's the, the two concepts are embedded together in David's mind. They're locked together within this culture where we don't see that as English readers coming to this, the idea of restoration being to be returned from exile where David had just pleaded not to be sent into exile. And mm -hmm. so, um, 
the idea that being restored is to to have the consequences or the the condemnation of um, disobedience removed so that you can come back into relationships. And so you see that the Psalms 51 carries these themes. So um, the, the salvation that's being produced here is the product of God's victory over his enemies. And so it's, you can abide in his presence. And when we're looking at Exodus, the people are free to return to the land so they can, you know, they can return to God and they can serve him. They can have a temple, they can have a king, and they can experience this joy. And you can see it going forward when we're talking with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and these other prophets about the Babylonian exile. And then, of course, with New Testament believers, and we've got all of these historical examples of God's uh, deliverance from a very real enemy who seeks to separate us from God's presence. Well, how does he do this? He does this through temptation. Go back to Genesis 3. And we talked about how Bathsheba and David's um, story connects right back to Genesis 3. The enemy separates us by tempting us to see, to take what we think is good or beautiful. This, ca this takes us out of the garden. This takes us out of God's presence. And this also takes us out of a place where we can actually experience joy. And it's not, it's not an, a salvation as an abstract New Testament principle where we're going to be saved to, you know, some kind of celestial uh, glory where we're all going to have fun, you know, like I said earlier, playing our harps. It, it becomes about a very real victory in this moment, in this world, that produces such an impact in our lives that everyone who looks at us sees that God has this ability to restore us to a place of blessing and joy. And everything that we were before which is embodied in that slavery time in Egypt where, you know, the children of Israel did not have any kind of control or autonomy and over themselves, where God takes you out of that kind of slavery. Only for us, it's not an Egyptian ruler. It is sin that rules over us because freedom in the Bible is never about the right to do whatever I want. It's not about the ability to just say, hey, I get to do determine my own fate and destiny. Freedom in the Bible is always given for the purpose of being in God's presence and maintaining that, that relationship with God through obedience and in, in serving him. And, mm -hmm. you know, we in America, we, we tend to think that freedom is all about total independence. And it's not. It's about interdependence on God when we come at it from a biblical standpoint. And so this is the reason why salvation and repentance go together, because what we tend to forget is sometimes that when we use the, the deliverance out of Egypt as the, as the, the kind of um, the, the format to look at this from, Israel was returning to the land God gave Abraham. So repentance is to return. Yes, none of the people who, who came out of Egypt had been to Canaan before. They hadn't been to the promised land, but they were returning to the land of their fathers. And so repentance really becomes about how do you get back to that place where God manifests his will? Because remember, when they're in Egypt, God doesn't speak. 
God doesn't speak right. after, you know, he tells Jacob, you know, you, you know, you go do your thing. And then God's silent until Moses leaves Egypt and is in the, the desert again on Sinai. And the, the, the country doesn't hear God's voice until they return to Sinai. So when, when we're returned to God's presence and we can hear his voice, that, that's repentance. That's us saying we need to hear from God. We, we will do what it takes to be able to be in his presence so that we can come back into his presence. It's not this idea that what we talked about before about just turning away from something, it's turning to something. And so salvation becomes the, this microcosm of a new story. So in our own lives, we become Israel coming out of Egypt. We're, we are Israel passing over the Red Sea. We are Israel entering into the promised land. And when people see that happen for an individual that they can actually talk to, that they can get to know, and they can validate mm -hmm. that experience by, by witnessing it. I mean, Revelation tells us the enemy is overcome by the blood of the, blood of the Lamb and the testimony of the saints. That's our story, and someone needs our story. And if we have truly repented and returned to God, and we are walking in that joy of salvation, then we do teach, not because we're pastors or teachers at seminary or what have you. We teach because our life becomes a living manifestation and demonstration of God's grace and mercy. And that's what the world needs. So, um, yeah. I see that we we're coming up on time, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's that's probably a good place to break. If if um, mm -hmm. I, I think so, and then we'll finish that off next week, and then probably get back to narrative, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. So I, I, you know, and I know, kind of, I, I went off there, but I mean, is there anything really better in the Bible than the fact that we can look at not just like the 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 the, these huge overwhelming sins of a nation, but we can actually look at one person who sinned so deeply and God saying, I still love you. I mean, it... well, I mean, it, I mean, what's, what's the phrase that, uh, you know, lar uh, a large number is a statistic, small numbers are a tragedy mm -hmm. or uh, one person's a tragedy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, we can talk about national sins. We can talk about national identity, things like that. but when we get into the nitty gritty of it, 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 there's one, one person that then we look and go, Oh, this is really mm -hmm. bad because this is you know, how much evil can one person affect? Yeah. You know, it's, it really gets, gets in there. And the fact that there is forgiveness for David, you know, it's kind of interesting. And I've, I've had some conversations um, with people and this is going to be kind of an amalgam thought. It's not <laughs> anything anyone said directly, but there is, you know, I've talked to some people who uh, talk about God's forgiveness and I've even, I don't know what made me think about this specifically. I mean, I'm sure something in the text did, but there's this idea that, um, you know, that we can do things that are bad enough that God can't forgive us. Mm -hmm. And I've, and I've spoken with some people who are former military even. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I don't know what made me think of this, Maybe Memorial Day recently happened. You know, I realize that's not Veterans Day. I realize it's a different one. But um, talking about, you know, to say, well, you know, God would never have me, you know, not exact, again, mm -hmm. not those exact words, but just kind of this gist of this. 
And you talk about it, and it's like, well, the things that sometimes the things that you do and when you're in military service, you know, those, yeah. you know, God can't look past that. And you're like, well, well David was in military service mm-hmm. for quite some time. And, you know, you're, you're, I, given modern rules of engagement, I seriously doubt you've done anything worse than David did. Right. Um, especially, I mean, specifically, I mean, David collected a ton of foreskins for Saul. I mean, you right. Can't, you know, there's, but you know what I'm saying, but just to say that here is a man who did egregious things mm-hmm. and God still forgave him. Well, and I, um, presumably. I, well, and I think I, I do. I think that's the point of the story. And, you know, because we've talked about it, David's story, this part of it could have been left out. The book of Chronicles absolutely left it out, acted like it didn't even happen. And, and God said, no, this is important. I want people to know how how far and how deep my forgiveness and love and the restoring power really can go. So mm-hmm. to have this example is actually really encouraging. And yes, it's troubling and, and we don't like to look at it. But I think most of us can look at our own lives and go, yeah, I've made some mistakes. It's probably not as bad as David. And if God can love him and think so highly of him that, you know, he would include the Psalms in his Bible, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. yeah, God can do the same for me. And, and that is the power of an individual testimony. And so that's the reason why we need to be sharing our stories. We need to be talking about what God's done in our lives. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you get to do that with credibility when you actually have those kinds of relationships formed where you can share with people and they don't just think you're blowing smoke. And sometimes that means they've got right. to walk through those dark times with you before they get to see the deliverance on the other side. And so uh, anyway, I, to me, it's just the Samuel can be so dark. Samuel can be such a, a brutal mm. book. Oh, it really is. <laughs> and yeah. then you bring the Psalm into it. And it's kind of like a breath of fresh air. And so it, it's been really, yeah, it's been really good. So anyway, we're over now. <laughs> well, that being, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. We, we go over often. Um, but that being said, um, everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, I've been really getting a lot out of this series, and I hope you are too. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, as always, Raven Creek SC on the social media, ravencreeksc.com um, gets you to the website and uh, gets you to... Uh, all of our shows. Uh, we've got uh, commentarians with Joe Zaragoza, Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington, um, Tending Our Nets with Joshua Sherman, and the newest um, Answers to Giant Questions um, with Tim Stedman. A lot of things to remember. <laughs> I'm going to have to make myself a note so I can stop pausing all the while uh, that I go through these. Um, but yeah, go check those out. Um, we're real glad to have everyone here. Um, hopefully. Uh, you can be a part of it, and we'll be having good conversation. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us next week.